Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry podcast audio version. Today is 13 September 2022. This is Membrane Biochemistry Lecture 53. And we just finished talking about enzymes involved in phospholipid metabolism altering membrane curvature while simultaneously becoming activated to pull lipids out of the membrane and react them with product of the reaction of the enzyme that alter the curvature of the membrane such that the lipid that caused the negative curvature could be removed to synthesize new lipid. So we're talking about diacyglycerol and we're talking about the synthesis of phosphatidylcholine. So if you, if you want to go back and listen to that lecture that I just finished uh, yesterday, um, uh, by all means do that before you listen to this one. So now I'm now at the very end of that lecture, what I, uh, alluded to was that there was going to be a new player that was going to be involved in the regulation of lipid metabolism in association with the changes in membrane curvature and the response to that curvature related to cell cycle. And I told you that you're going to be a little bit surprised about it, although I did mention it was a transcription factor. And so that's where we are now. And that's what I'm going to mention to you. All right. So again, there are external and internal signals that regulate key polypeptides that act as enzymes. And those enzymes are functioning to control and mediate changing environmental conditions within the membrane. And so that's a very complex system that has to work essentially at the level of immediacy, because if the membrane can't respond, then the cell can't respond. If that doesn't occur, then whatever is happening internal to the cell that could be stress or just a change in the configuration of, say, gene expression or bioenergetics for some subtle changes within uh, metabolism <clears throat> that require those changes, including all at the level of gene expression, enzyme activity, and synthesis of intermediates. But on top of that, you have the external environment, and the external environment must be in constant communication with each cell. Otherwise, cells will not be synchronized to function as a tissue. And if that occurs, then you have no homeostasis, even though that homeostasis is far from chemical equilibrium, so that bioenergetics can occur. And without that homeostasis, what you have is a complete corruption of any multicellular system. So obviously, it's not the case. Obviously, the multicellular systems work just fine. Think about the human being that can live to be 70, 75, 80 years old, staying alive all that time. All of that system has to function. All of those cells within those tissues, within those organ systems, all have to function. When they don't, disease can occur, but disease is often uh, repealed because of the immune system. And that means the immune system is in constant uh, functioning um, interaction at the level of surveillance, uh, repair, and often resynthesis 
or at least a modification of cell division so that whatever tissue might have been damaged because of the, say, external stress, that tissue can be rebuilt. I think of thinking about uh, muscle cells. <clears throat> okay. So what I'm now going to explain to you is the, is the complex, and we're, this is only going to scratch the surface because research science is only at the surface of this phenomenon. So the papers that we're talking about are all published after 2010. And papers are coming out every week uh, looking into this whole system. How do membranes immediately respond to the environment, external and internal, and make real-time changes in not just the biophysics, like curvature and fluidity and signal transduction uh, and voltage-gated channel activity, but actually in the membrane lipid component themselves so that you maintain that macromolecular structure, which is the membrane. And I, I want to keep on telling you that membranes are macromolecular structures similar to, similar but not the same, as something like a nucleic acid or a polypeptide or a complex glycan. The difference, though, is that with lipids, we don't have a lot of covalent bonds. We have a lot of hydrophobic interactions. And because of that, you have a membrane doing all the functions it has. Remember, canonical biochemistry, structure-function relationships when it comes to event ontologies and living systems. But the key feature about the membrane, that it is a, a much associated with hydrophobic interactions because you have lipids and lipids are not soluble and aqueous and because of that their interactions more have to do with hydrophobic alterations than with aqueous interactions which would then of course allow for solubility constants and um, concentration equivalencies and the dynamics of what you think about when considering enzymatic reactions or chemical reactivity. The membrane is largely lipid. It's very uh, um, organized to be able to deal with changes in, with the vagaries of the changes in the environment, but not at that level of covalent modification, more at the level of hydrophobic interactions. Yet you have enzymatic activity and the enzymatic activity then helps maintain that membrane structure. And the final note on that is the issue that we have as research scientists, particularly lipid biochemists, of which I am in that subclass, is trying to find the correct techniques and instrumentation to be able to understand even the actual structure, the primary structure of a membrane. That is how individual lipids are interdigitated in some kind of sequence, like you'd have, say, in a polypeptide, amino to carboxy terminus, you see? And we don't have that because we don't have the tools. We don't have the tools because of the complexity of the system. Okay, enough said. Now, what's maintaining this activity, this is the point I want to now get into, is a moonlighting activity. When moonlighting, I mean, it's not its normal day job, right? It's something, something, an old term that probably comes out of the 1940s or 50s. 
So you have a moonlighting activity of a protein that's normally acting as a transcription factor. And we just talked about this protein. This protein is like the AP1 protein, CFOS. And indeed, CFOS dependent activation of lipid synthesis is actually observed. And the first place people were studying this was in light-stimulated retinal ganglion and photoreceptor cells, but also in growing NIH3T3 cells and in PC12 cells induced to differentiate in tumors of both the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. And indeed also, this interaction of CFOS with membrane lipid synthesis was discovered in malignant human mammary tumors. Now, in the retina, there was a, an obvious difference between the response of the photoreceptor and the ganglion cells. When this is an animal model, and this was an avian animal model. So when you submit young chicks to a light stimulation with respect to the synthesis of phospholipids, and then examining the expression of this transcription factor CFOS, both increased upon light stimulation in the ganglion cells and decreased in the photoreceptor cells. So it looked like there was a correlation between the transcription factor and then membrane lipid metabolism. So you might think it has to do with gene expression. However, specifically blocking CFOS expression also blocked the, the entire light-induced modification in the synthesis of phospholipids in both cell types. Now, let's step back a little bit and think about the physiology here. Since depolarization for neurotransmitter release in this system occurs in the light, in the ganglion cells, but in the dark, in the photoreceptor cells, you could use logic to understand that that increase in CFOS expression responds to the cell's need to increase the rate of membrane biogenesis and maintenance repair to directly replenish the synaptic vesicles that are recycling, which necessarily have to recycle upon neurotransmitter release because it's a neurotransmission, right? So in the NIH3T3 cells induced to re-enter cell cycle, two waves of CFOS expression were detected to promote the concomitant waves of stimulated incorporation of a P32 orthophosphate into phospholipids. So this is a, typically how you do um, lipid biochemistry. One of the ways that, that um, your professor here spent a lot of his uh, early career using radioisotopes and look at the incorporation or movement of radioisotopes such as P32, C14, or tritium through meta metabolic interactions within a pathway. And from that, being able to isolate individual intermediates in that pathway, look at their structure using GC or LCMS spec, and then figuring out the pathway itself.
by following the radioisotope through the various reactants and products, and then ultimately new reactants and products because they all become intermediates right after that reaction has occurred. So this is a, this is a very common way to, uh, to study uh, lipid metabolism by using radioisotopes. So they were looking at P32-phosphate incorporation into phospholipids, and they were looking at CFOS expression in these 3T3 cells. And I said that the first, okay, I didn't say it, but now I'm going to explain. The first wave of CFOS expression in this cell, in the cell system peaked at about seven and a half minutes. And then it, then it returned to the control level of CFOS expression about another seven and a half minutes later. But the second pulse started at 30 minutes and remained elevated for at least two hours. So the longest time that was examined was that two hour period. So it could have actually been longer than that. Right? There are you know, subtle uh, complexities of using radioisotopes, particularly P32, the short half-life in these kinds of experiments. So they kept it to two hours. So what they discovered was that the lipids that incorporated the P32 during the first wave were actually secondary messenger phosphoinositides. Whereas in the second wave, membrane biogenesis was obvious because you found P32 in membrane lipids and membrane phospholipids. Those were actually the major radioactive products. Okay. So the half-life of CFOS messenger RNA seemed to be really short in that first wave, maybe only 10 minutes because you went with between 15 and 30, right? while it was much longer in the second phase. So again, if you're a good research scientist, particularly good lipid biochemist, which are top of the line research scientists, um, you realize that that coordination, that correlation between phosphate uptake, the expression of a protein, which you know is a transcription factor, CFOS, <coughs> and then the distribution of that P32 into various lipid classes, starting off in the short burst with signaling lipids. Those are, that would be the phosphate cascade. Those would be pre-existing membrane lipids. And then the longer burst associated with the expression equivalency of the CFOS transcription factor linked to the P32 uptake into those lipids. Those phosphoglycerolipids were ones that were obviously synthesized de novo, okay? So you're looking there at not just utilization of membrane lipids, okay? Like we were just talking about the ganglion system with the chick, but also synthesis de novo of those lipids, which meant that enzymatic activity had to be coordinated as well as membrane-mediated phenomena, right? Which are two different things, right? Where are the enzymes at? Are they localized in the membrane? Because obviously, even though CFOS expression was being introduced, does that also mean that all these genes that code for the enzymes that are involved in phospholipid biosynthesis, which I was telling you last lecture, are found in multiple organelles, endoplasmic reticulum, Golgi apparatus, plasma membrane, peroxisomal membrane, right, to name just a few, <laughs> plus uh, enzymes in the cytoplasm too. 
for de novo fatty acid synthesis for sure. Um, and the utilization of that fatty acid for fatty acyl-CoA incorporation into a phospholipid from thioester to oxygen ester, right? So all that activity, it was obvious that something was a much tighter mechanism of control. That's the point I'm making, especially when you think about neurotransmission, right? I mean, you can't have all of these genes coordinatedly, you know, transcribed, translated, and then mobilized to a subcellular compartment, and then all organized stoichiometrically to be able to carry out a pathway, and then make a new membrane lipid and have a new membrane made all in under, you know, an hour, right? It's way too much coordination. And see faucet transcription factor. So I mean, you had to have this whole control over chromatin remodeling as a prolegomena to all of that biochemical activity, right? So it looks like something else is going on. That's what I'm trying to say here. This is how research science works, right? It's methodical, but it's also very logical. That's the important thing about being a scientist. We the first thing we do is look at the system from a logical perspective and think about the various um, aspects that we can contribute from metaphysics to biology. And that is to examine the nature of the system. We want to look at the quantity of the system, changes in quantity, changes in quality, like changes in membrane lipid composition. Quantity would be within one lipid or, or say the expression of CFOS. And then the other components are relational, right? So relational meaning if this changes, how does the other one change, right? And then modality, the most important, I think, of the four features of looking at a metaphysical uh, characterization of reality, right? Whether or not it is reality is a different story, but, uh, but a phenomenological characterization of reality. That's what I want to say, right? A Kantian phenomenological perspective. Then the modality is really important. And that is, is this a necessary phenomenon? Did this phenomenon actually occur? And if it did occur and it's necessary, what happens when it doesn't occur, right? So modality, right? It must occur rather than it simply does occur or can it occur at all, right? That's the modality in metaphysics. All right, so membrane biogenesis requires the coordinated supply of many biomolecules. So going back to the retinal ganglial cells, now, an isotopic labeling experiment was performed with these two. They were using tritiated glycerol and P32 orthophosphate. So you can now look, these are called dual label experiments. You can look at the incorporation of phosphate into a phospholipid and the incorporation of glycerol into a glycerol phospholipid. So they did this in vivo and they also did it in vitro. And in vitro, they also used P32 labeled at the gamma phosphoryl of ATP. And, it, and this, these kind of experiments showed that the labeled phospholipids were similarly increased. So that's a quantitative 
component, right? Not a physical consideration I just mentioned to you, explained to you. So there's a quantitative increase in phospholipids with CFOS dependent increases in a manner that was associated with the light exposure versus the dark. Okay. So that involves quantitative, qualitative, relational, and modal interactions. All of the four features of phenomena, or Aristotle would have called reality. Okay. Now, similar results were found with another class of cells called PC12 cells. And they, these are cells induced to differentiate into specifically sympathetic-like neurons with the nerve growth factor, NGF. CFOS activates the overall metabolic labeling in that system of both phospholipids and then specifically glycolipids. Okay, now those are different because that means that there's a glycosylation component. And some glycolipids can also be sphingolipids. And of course, some phospholipids can be sphingolipids. Okay. Now, blocking CFOS expression impairs both this neurotogenesis. So these are sympathetic like neurons. Neurotogenesis. If you, if you block CFOS expression, you impair neurotogenesis and the activation a phospholipid and glycolipid biosynthesis. Yeah, okay, now that's pretty interesting, right? Now you have a physiological component there, neurotogenesis, okay? Neurons being formed, necessarily requiring these lipids. And CFOS being the transcription factor involved in the change of events to occur, this uh, neurotogenic event. So now, here we go. Thin layer chromatography, yes, we still do this in lipid biochemistry. It's an excellent analytical tool. Thin layer chromatography analysis of total radioactivity in the lipid extract after metabolic labeling of those cells. Now here they're using C14. There's a third isotope, and I mentioned these. Um, galactose, or using the P32 orthophosphate, show that about half, or even up to 60% increase in the labeling of all the C14 labeled glycolipids and of phosphatidylcholine that also was labeled with the C14 and P32 in the phospholipid fraction. So what does that mean? It means that the results come together to corroborate that there is an event which appears to be a total cellular phenomenon that involves a stimulation of the lipid synthetic machinery in what can be called a CFOS mediated response to the PC12 cells. These are the ones that are going to go through neurogenesis. The response of the PC12 cells to the growth factor, right? The nerve growth factor, NGF. So now you have a complete cascade of events by using the radioisotopes to track this phenomenon, right? In cell culture. Now, you know, of course, the extrapolation of cell culture to cells in a living system, that, you know, that is a whole other order of magnitude into 
deeper research, right? And you wouldn't do this in humans because these are radio, some of these radioisotopes you can't use. So you would go then probably to a mouse model, right? All right, so let's keep going. So let me check my time here. I, sometimes I get carried away. That's a joke. Sometimes I get carried away. I always get carried away because it's really stimulating to me. It's really interesting. Even though I've done this research, me now lecturing this to you makes it all the more um, fathomable to me and real to me because once you read something and then you write down what you've read and then you express it verbally, those three components of accumulating new knowledge really help hardwire it into your central nervous system. So accumulating body of, of many different uh, research reports suggests that the activation of lipid synthesis is promoted directly by this transcription factor CFOS. And that this activity is not involving gene expression, sensu stricto. It's involving a direct activation of enzymatic activity from a transcription factor. So the first thing you do is you sit down, if you're the scientist, you're looking at this data and you say, well, this looks like another event occurrence of what I've seen many times in my research over the decades. That something that's first discovered and its function is examined and elucidated by good, solid research science. It's given a name and the name is associated with its function. And so we tend to then become biased to believe that function is what was first discovered. However, what we find as research scientists, because we, go, we are doing research, so we're forever examining the system in better detail, right? If you want to look at it at a higher magnification and with better... Uh, tools and with more knowledge to come into it. I have something to say about that at the end of, of today's lecture about hypotheses, etc. And I, I don't want to forget that. I want to tell you that. But okay, well, after all of that, then you realize, well, we, we're going to have to hang that bias on a hook. Like you, know, you take your hat off and you put it on a hook. And you say, you know, maybe this transcription factor is actually involved in some kind of membrane-associated event. Nothing nuclear, nothing mitochondrial genomic either. Something that's going on here and now in the membrane. And this polypeptide is functioning there, which means that, yes, canonically, it's always been considered a transcription factor, but now we're going to have to start thinking that it's not just a transcription factor, it's actually a protein involved in membrane remodeling. It doesn't involve nascent gene expression. Okay. So these are really important issues. This is why authentic biochemistry hopefully is unique. I'm bringing to bear here, reading these scientific papers with you, um, analyzing them, and then synthesizing the information within the corpus of the literature, right? The scientific literature. And it's not just my memory of the literature. I go digging for the association. 
And then that's what my presentation is, right? So analysis and synthesis from a dialectical uh, mechanism. I think I might want to stop there because um, the, the whole other rest of the story is coming down. Don't worry. It's going to be in the next lecture. But I want to go back and uh, cover this small bit of philosophy with you. Something I wrote down just yesterday. I was going to mention it in yesterday's lecture, but I totally forgot about it. So today I can say it. Here's what I wrote. There is a loss of hours every day. Sometimes I see I've been working on a lecture and two hours have gone. Moments are far more conserved, however, as in the burning of a wood fire. The continuum combusts the temporal border. A reaction without defined substrates, obtaining products at once recognized as intermediates along the apparon. Such is the arc of knowledge from hypothesis to hypostasis. So I'll leave you with that and tell you that this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest on this, the 13th day of September, 2022, saying bye for now.